And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Tuesday, September 3rd, 2019. Kicking off the show, a little locomotive breath by Jethro Tull off the seminal Aqualong album. Don't ask me why I chose that song. Actually, I kind of know why I chose that song. For some reason, I used to love Jethro Tull. Haven't probably listened to Jethro Tull in 20 years, I'm going to say. It's one of the actually very first albums that I ever bought on my own. I bought that and Led Zeppelin II at the same time, and I wore them both out. Uh, but that's, you know, 37 years ago now, probably. I think I was 13 at the time. Uh, but for whatever reason, uh, they popped in my head yesterday, downloaded a couple of songs off iTunes, and uh, presto, there you go. Plus, I think it's a... Uh, a good intro to kick a show off. So we've got a big show to get to. We've got uh, the NFL season right around the corner. Game one Thursday, Green Bay, Chicago. We will give you uh, our picks for division winners and wild cards in both the AFC and the NFC. Uh, I'll give you some Lions uh, predictions as well. Um, talk about some news and notes around the NFL as a uh, Cut day uh, came and went this past weekend. Uh, teams uh, reorganizing their rosters. Uh, some big trades actually being made, which you're seeing more and more now in the NFL. You never used to see trades in the NFL. Uh, you're seeing them more and more now. Um, and uh, we've also got Major League Baseball as well. And we'll start right there with the Mets, who uh, when last we spoke uh, were on a nice little run. And they were coming into a nine-game homestand. You wanted, you know, six and three homestand there, right? Two out of three, two out of three, two out of three. Well, they started out great, swept the Indians. And then, of course, in comes their nemesis, the Atlanta Braves, and the Mets find ways to lose to the Braves. It's been going on forever. I mean, other than the 2015 season when the Braves were really bad and the Mets just crushed them, I remember there was that one game late in the year where I think the Mets were losing like 7-1 going to the eighth inning. They came back and won. Murphy hit a homer. Cespedes hit a homer. But other than that, the Braves have always had the Mets number. It's like something about that logo, and the Mets team sees that logo, and they just fall to pieces. You know, DeGrom pitched a great game. They lost in extra innings. Um, you know, it, just, it was just awful. I mean, they could have easily won all three. They lost all three. So even there, you're like, okay, three and three. Here come the Cubs, who are directly ahead of them in the wild card standings. You get two out of three against the Cubs, and you're right back in, in good shape. And, of course, they got swept by the Cubs. Um, you know, Syndergaard had a – you know, they, they'd lost – well, the first game they lost, they didn't score any runs, right? Matt's pitch, pitched well. Second game, Syndergaard – had one of the worst starts of his career. Of, of course, also, by the way, not to, uh, you know, not to be ignored, was when a game was still close, Rosario throwing away a double play ball, and then Rosario and J.D. Davis coming together in short left field, and that's got to be Rosario's ball. He's got to take charge there. They look at each other. You got it. I'll take it. Ball falls in between them. So, yes, I understand Syndergaard gave up three home runs. Uh, his defense as has been a big problem and a theme all year, as we know, did him no favors. So then they went into Philly, and look, I thought for them to have any chance to get back into this now, because look, there's a lot of teams. It's not just 
Philly. It's not just, I mean, Washington is now pulled away. But it's not just the Cubs. You know, the Brewers are back in the mix. The Diamondbacks of all teams are back in the mix, having won, I think, eight of nine. Phillies are there. So I thought the Mets, after getting swept in six straight games, needed to win these six straight games. So they needed to sweep Philly in Philly, and they needed to sweep Washington in Washington. Well, they took care of business the first two games against Philly. And then, of course, we get Mickey Calloway doing Mickey Calloway things in game three. So let's set the stage. Um, Mets actually had a, had a bit of a inspiring win on Friday. Uh, they were down one nothing, bases loaded, nobody out. Ramos comes up to pinch hit, keeps his hit streak alive with a base hit. Rosario gets a big hit. Then Frazier hits a home run. The floodgates open. The Mets tack on some meaningless runs late. Win that game, I think, 8-1. to one. Uh, They win a nice game on Saturday, late afternoon. Watch that game with my dad. Um, Matt's again pitched well. Also done in by some poor defense. Had to leave the game early. Cowley took him out with the bases of nobody out which I thought was a mistake, to be fair to Callaway. It worked out. Avalon walked the guy and then got a double play, then gets the rocket shot that Frazier makes a nice play on. Um, Mets score late. Ramos, four for five. Uh, Add on runs, get to 6-3. Lugo lights out for two innings. Justin Wilson lights out for two and two-thirds of an inning. So Sunday night, get a home run early from Alonzo. Mets bats go silent against the, the inimitably... Uh, hittable uh, Zach Eflin. Mets bats are doing absolutely nothing. Um, Gabe Kapler, the Phillies manager, is Mets a huge favor. Takes Eflin out after like 85 pitches. Brings in some reliever nobody's ever heard of. He immediately gets into trouble. Two runners on base in the top of the eighth. And uh, Cal made a decision. He could pinch hit J.D. Davis, who after having a, a monster second half and a very fine season overall, had really been struggling and definitely looked like he needed a day off. His bat looked, looked slow, and he looked tired. Could have tried to put Davis up there. Of course, the possibility exists of a double play. Or he could put up a pinch hitter that is adept at bunting and sacrifice, and now you've got your best hitters in McNeil, Alonzo, and Conforto coming up. Callaway elected to put up Guillaume to bunt. He did. Second and third one out. He got killed for it in a lot of circles. I did not think that's a bad play. You know, look, at worst, you're going to – the Mets were losing 2-1 at the time. You would think at worst, with McNeil up, with second and third and one out, at worst he's going to figure out a way to get one run home with a sack fly or something like that. And then you've still got Alonzo, and if they don't want to pitch to Alonzo, then you're going to have Conforto. And so the possibility of a big inning still exists. So I did not have a problem with that move whatsoever. Now, unfortunately, McNeil also has been in a massive slump ever since he came off the DL. He also doesn't look right. Yesterday's two-run two homer hopefully gets him jump-started. McNeil grounds out to first. They, throw, they bring in Nayrese, who's all over the place, by the way. Their closer, Hector Nayrese. He throws a wild pitch on a 3-1 pitch to Alonzo. 
So you could also, by the way, it was clear he didn't want to pitch to Alonzo. So you could also argue that Kapler didn't know what the hell he's doing there either because if you're just going to do that and you know Nate Reese likes to throw split fingers, then just pitch. don't bother pitching around him with a runner on third where the possibility of a wild pitch comes into play and a run scoring. Just intentionally walk him, which he didn't. So they gift the Mets there. Then Conforto comes up. First pitch of Conforto is literally six inches off the plate, not even anywhere close to a strike. Joe West, who's been one of the worst umpires in Major League Baseball for 40 years, is doing home plate, calls it a strike, ruined the whole at-bat for Conforto because Nairis threw the same exact pitch pitch to, and now he's forced to swing at it, couldn't, couldn't get that, and then struck out on the next pitch. So now the game is tied 2-2. Okay. Now, you know, you wanted, of course, to take the lead, but you take, you know, the Phillies gifted you a run there. All right, fine. It's 2-2, bottom of the eighth. Phillies have heart of their order coming up, starting with Bryce Harper. So I understand Lugo wasn't available because he pitched two innings the night before, and Justin Wilson apparently wasn't available even for one batter. He's a lefty. You would have liked to have him face Harper there. But for whatever reason, he wasn't available either. Um, So Callaway decides to bring in in the biggest spot of the year, in the biggest game of the year, brings in Daniel Zamora. Recently recalled from AAA. This guy's been up and down all year. He's been terrible all year. He's supposedly a lefty specialist who doesn't get lefties out. His numbers against lefties were embarrassingly bad. The OPS against him is like in the 900s. And this is who Callaway brings in to face Bryce Harper. The most dangerous hitter on the Phillies. Promptly gives up a leadoff single. Then he takes him out. Now he's going to bring in Familia. Well, look. If you don't trust Familia to pitch to Bryce Harper there, why would you bring trust Familia to pitch to, to come in with guys on base? I mean, it just, again, Callaway's reasons, do, they, they, it do, they don't make any sense. His moves make no sense. The reasoning is f- constantly flawed. I mean, if you trust Familia enough there, a guy who at least has a track record, I understand he's been terrible this year. He'd been better lately, much better lately. If you're going to bring him in that inning, why wouldn't you let him start the inning clean? Familia, throughout his career, has been a closer, which means he generally starts innings. He's more comfortable, he's most comfortable starting innings without guys on base, particularly this year where control has been a major issue for him. So, of course, he promptly walks the next guy. Then they get a deep fly ball. Nimmo makes a bad decision to try to throw to third base instead of second and moves the runner up from first. So now you have second and third and one out instead of first and third where the double play is still in order. So the Mets intentionally walk the next guy. And then uh, Kingery hits a, you know, a line drive. Of course, Rosario, as usual, not positioned properly. Never in the right spot, it seems. I don't know if that's his fault or the coaching staff's fault. Probably a little of both. So a line drive that maybe if he's positioned properly gets caught, goes just past his glove for a, a bases-clearing double. The Mets, of course, go meekly in the ninth inning. That was a killer. Now, to be fair, they did bounce back very nicely yesterday. They hammered uh, Joe Ross, who they should. Mediocre pitcher. Um, Davis, J.D. Davis came out on fire. 
two-run double. McNeil, two-out, two-run homer after the Mets had put up a two-spot. Mets scored a bunch of runs with two outs. Syndergaard, after the worst start of his career, was dominant yesterday. Seven shutout innings, a couple of bloop hits. Gave up a double late to Rendon. At one point, he retired 16 in a row. No walks, 10 strikeouts. Again, if I have to read one article in the offseason that the Mets are thinking about trading this guy, I'm going to lose my mind. He's had a so-so year, and he's 10-7 and on a team that's barely over 500 with a 3-8 ERA. And again, because of the defense, you could shave at least half a run off of that ERA. At least. And he's been spectacular in the second half, save for that start against the Cubs, which again was not all his fault. So Callaway pulls him after. Mets are leading 7-0, right? Now, you know your bullpen needs some rest, right? You couldn't bring in Lugo. You don't want to bring in Lugo in a 7-0 game anyway, right? You had to use Familia in that game. So he pulls Syndergaard after seven innings, 90 pitches. That makes no sense, especially considering Syndergaard only threw like 60-something pitches in his prior start because he got knocked out of the game early. Makes no sense. What, he can't pitch eight innings, and then you can bring in whoever you want for the ninth inning with a seven-run lead. So he brings in Tyler Bashler, another guy who's been on the Syracuse you know, shuttle all year, back and forth, been mostly terrible. Guy throws very hard, at times teases you and makes you think he could be a useful bull, bullpen arm, but he get, I think he's given up six home runs in like 20-something innings. Has control issues also. But okay, he brings in Bachelor. You think even he can't screw this up, and he looks actually great in the eighth inning. Gets an easy one, two, three inning, strikes a guy out to the bottom of the order. Okay, you would think that if this is a guy that you're going to want to use, I mean, you're not going to use him in a big, big spot, but you might be forced to, right? And he does have good stuff. He throws high 90s. Wouldn't you think you'd just leave well enough alone and get the kid out of there on a high note, feeling good about himself, and then you could bring in the great Daniel Zamora, who was good enough to pitch to Bryce Harper in a 2-2 game, but you can't bring him in in the bottom of the ninth of a game you're leading 7-0? So what does Callaway do? He brings Baxter back out again for the ninth, and of course, he starts walking, guys, gives up a three-run homer with two outs as Drupal Cabrera. And then he brings in Diaz to get the last out. But, I mean, again, perfect example of how Mickey Calloway, again, for a guy that pitching is supposed to be his thing, has no feel or understanding of how to deploy his pitchers. It's spectacular how bad he is at this. It really is stunning. I'm telling you right now, if Joe Girardi was the Mets manager this year, you could add eight wins right now. The Mets would be 11 games over 500. And so the question becomes, as a Mets fan, do you want them to somehow go on another miraculous run here, which is what it's going to take for them to make even the second wild card slot and win like 15 out of their next 16? I mean, what? How many more games do they have right now? Let's go to the, uh, they've got, what, 20-something games? Let's see. They're 70 and 67. What do they have, 20, 25 games left? Let me see. Hang tight. Bear with me. All right. The Mets are 70 
No, wait. Okay, the Mets are 70 and 67, so they played 137 games. So they've got 25 games left. Say 88 might get you to the second wild card. Maybe. Right? Right now, the Nationals are, would, would, would be the first wild card, and the Cubs would be the second. The Cubs have 74 wins. So let's just say 88's the number. The Mets have to go 18 and 7 in their last 25. Do you want the Mets to do that? Which means likely, in all likelihood, Callaway will be back. Not guaranteed, but it would mean he'd be back. Or would you like to see them finish strong, which I think is important, by the way. I think it's important for the Mets to finish strong, regardless if they make the playoffs or not. Because you have young guys, and we'll get to in a second, that the Mets' future actually potentially can be bright. Or, and then win 85, 86 games, fall short, and they move on from Callaway, and they hire, hopefully, Girardi. Listen, I don't care if they hire Edgardo Alfonso, former, you know, really good player for the Mets, who I believe is managing for them somewhere in the minors. I think the single-A team in Brooklyn, as a matter of fact. So I said I want the Mets to finish strong. I think it's important. Look at the Mets' core players. McNeil, still relatively young. He's not that young age-wise, 27, but, you know, this is his first full year in the big leagues. You want these guys to get at least get exposed to the intensity of a late season wild card chase or playoff chase. You got him. You have Alonzo. You have Conforto. You have Rosario. Now I'm still not fully sold on Rosario. I know he's shown a lot of growth this year. He's been pretty good. He's had a pretty good year. He's shown a propensity to be able to hit with runners in scoring position. He's not had a great year. The OPS is like 760, 770. Still doesn't walk as much as you'd like, but he certainly improved his two-strike approach. Makes more contact. Struck out less this year. The defense, you know, sometimes it looks great. Other times it's, it's puzzling. I'm not saying dump him. And I'm comfortable with keeping him as part. I mean, he's still only 23. So, you know, you hope he makes an even, obviously you hope he makes an even bigger jump next year into, you know, quasi-star status. But if the Mets packaged him in a big deal to get, say, a stud center fielder, I would not hate that at all. Because that's the Mets' biggest need as far as position players are concerned. But I digress. You've got, let's say you keep Rosario. Rosario's young. Alonzo's young. Conforto, relatively young, 26, 27. McNeil, 27. J.D. Davis should be the Mets' starting third baseman next year. He's 25, I believe. I understand he has some issues in the field. He's a worker. He'll work his ass off. He'll make himself at least adequate as a third baseman. The guy worked his butt off all offseason to, to turn himself into a better hitter this year. Now, look, the guy had always hit in the minors. Hit 345 last year at AAA. Was blocked in that Astros organization that's extremely deep in position players. One of the knocks on him, though, was may not have a true position in the field. And the other knock on him was he was a good breaking ball hitter but couldn't hit a good fastball. Well, I've seen him demolish really good fastballs this year. Goes to right field extremely well. And he was all through hard work. He's a worker. I'm, I, I mean, this idea, by the way, that guys can't improve, it, it drives me crazy. I mean, I, I remember when everybody said Wally Backman couldn't play second base for the Mets either. He wasn't good enough. And then he was just fine because he worked his tail off. 
You know, even though I don't like the guy, Wade Boggs is a perfect example. Was not known to have a particularly good glove early in his career. And then I know he won some gold gloves. That was more because of his hitting. But at least made himself a capable third baseman. Guys can work. These guys are professional athletes. If they put in the work, they can at least be adequate. So I have no qualms about J.D. Davis being the third baseman next year. None. So that's five guys. Davis, Rosario, Conforto, Alonzo, McNeil. Five of your starting eight are all young guys. 25, 26, 27, 23. That's pretty good. Throw in Brandon Nimmo, by the way. I will throw him in. By the way, he came back finally off the DL. He's been out forever. Walked his first three plate appearances and then hit a double, RBI double in his fourth. If Nimmo's healthy, he certainly should be part of the, of, of the solution and part of the, the, of the team moving forward. That's six guys. You're going to have Ramos back next year. It's the last year of his contract. And listen, his defense isn't great, but the pitchers have figured out. He's figured out the pitchers. They figured him out. He's been fine calling games lately. He's never going to, you know, nobody's ever going to confuse him with Benito Santiago back there, Yadier Molina. He's not a total disaster. And look, the guy's a great professional hitter, particularly with runners in scoring position and with the bases loaded. You want him up. Guy gives you a good at-bat almost every time. So he's fine as your catcher. The Mets have to do something better than Tomas Nito as the backup, though. Have to. Have to. Hell, bring Rene Rivera back as the backup next year. I don't care. You just cannot have Tomas Nito as your backup next year. You can't. I don't care how much the pitcher's like throwing to him. The guy's a 205 hitter. You can't have that in today's baseball. You can't. Because it's not like he's got a rocket arm and he throws everybody out and steals. He's not even that good at throwing runners out. So, the Mets... Future is bright. Now, we'll see what they do with Wheeler, whether they tender him, they keep him, they trade him, they let him walk. It'd be interesting to see. But Matz is going to be back. Syndergaard is going to be back. Strowman, who's not been great, by the way, although he pitched well against the Phillies on Sunday night, six innings, two runs, and that ballpark is pretty good. Strowman will be back, and obviously DeGrom will be back. So the Mets are going to have four, you know, two studs at the top in Syndergaard and DeGrom. Matt's, who, by the way, other than two or three really bad outings this year, it's been pretty good. I mean, the ERA is like four, and he had that one game against the Phillies early in the year where you know, I think he didn't record an out. He gave up eight runs. He's been pretty solid. I'm not saying he's, he's not a star, but you can certainly live with him as your third or fourth starter if, this, if he's going to be the way he's been this year. And if Stroman's your fourth starter, that's pretty good. And you listen, I'd like to have Wheeler back. You don't know. The big issue with the Mets, they got to get a real center fielder, and they got and they need to improve the bullpen. And you have to hope that Diaz bounces back. We talk about the fickle nature of closers and relievers in general all the time. You have to hope this is the aberration. And while he certainly probably, while he certainly will not have the year that he had last year with the 57 saves and the .78 WHIP and all that other stuff, or .84, whatever it was, ridiculous. He can't be this. But you have to also probably expect a bit of a downturn from Lugo if you keep him in the bullpen. You know, he's a, he's a possibility to move into the rotation. Either way, the Mets need to fortify that bullpen. So right now, as it stands, 
the Mets have a lot of work to do as far as the wild card is concerned. They are, right now, Washington's uh, fairly comfortably ahead of the first spot, three and a half on the Cubs, six in the loss column. At 77 and 59. The Cubs are 74 and 63. Then the Phillies are 71 and 65. Diamondbacks 71 and 67. Brewers 70, 67, tied with the Mets. So the Mets have to jump one, two, three teams to make the second wild card. Now, they could do it. They've got games against some of these teams. I mean, obviously, look, they got to win these next two against the Diamondbacks. I understand tonight's a tall order going against Scherzer. But you throw in DeGrom. So keep the game close. Get into that bad Nats bullpen and win the game late. And then they should win tomorrow against Annabelle Sanchez. Please. Come on. I know he's had an okay year. Another guy's very hittable. Let's go to the schedule again with the Mets. I know we did this a couple weeks ago. I forgot. So... Let's see here. All right. We have got... By the way, that's why that game Sunday night against Philly was a killer, too, because the Cubs had lost, so the Mets would have caught it to three behind the Cubs and would have hurt the Phillies as well. So that Sunday night loss was a killer. But, all right, then they've got one, two, three more against the Phillies at home. Have to win at least two of those three. Then they've got four at home against the Diamondbacks. See, they can make some hay right there. Those seven games, they go five and two. They have to go five and two minimum. So I would say they don't have to sweep Washington, but they have to win one of these next two games. They have to win both these series against Philly and Washington. They have to win that series against Philly again. And they got to win three out of four again. They got to go minimum five and two in those seven. Then they got the Dodgers at home. Now, the Dodgers have got this whole thing wrapped up. And it's going to be mid-September, so who knows what the Dodgers are going to be doing then. But they're going to probably still play some guys to keep them fresh. By the way, the Dodgers team is so deep, like their bench could be starters for half the league. So those are not going to be easy games. Then they're at Colorado. Look, Colorado's awful. They're 1-9 in their last 10. But playing in that stadium always scares me. Then they're at Cincinnati. Cincinnati stinks to high heaven. Then they've got four at home against the Marlins. They've got to win all four of those. And then, again, they've got... Three at home against the Braves the last three games of the year. I said this the last time. Braves will likely have nothing to play for. Won't matter. They, they will love to knock the Mets out. And again, the Mets have seem to have some mental block. Now maybe law of averages will even out, and the Mets will finally get a few breaks against them. But so it's not it's not impossible, but it's obviously a tall task. But but regardless, I don't want to see the Mets collapse here down the stretch. Win 85 games, keep it interesting, get these guys with a good taste in their mouths, with a good feeling about what it's like to play competitive games in a playoff race down the stretch. All right, we'll take a break. We'll be back with the NFL right after this. Okay, we're back here on another edition of Jamal About Sports. By the way, uh, I said we're going to do NFL. We are in a minute. Uh, I just realized I gave the American League short shrift here. So let's take a quick look at the American League wild cards. I mean, look, the Yankees are winning that division by, by a million. Uh, they've got 90 wins already. They've had a remarkable season. A million guys hurt. 
talked about it with AG three weeks ago. Everyone they call up, everybody they have is somehow an all-star. Everybody's great. Mike Ford, somehow great. Joe Rochelle is somehow great. Cameron Mabin was terrible for his whole major league career, somehow great. Everybody the Yankees have is great. Pitching is not so great. I know Tanaka pitched well yesterday. They still lost 7-0. He only gave up two runs in six innings. Um, look, we talk about it all the time. Regular season and playoffs, two completely different things in Major League Baseball. Two completely different things. Depending on who the Yankees draw in the first round, would not be shocked to see them not get out of the first round. Wouldn't surprise me at all. Now, look, playoff baseball is also different. So they just need their starters to not suck. I've said this before. Because with that bullpen, with Green and Britton and Ottavino and Chapman, and if they get Batances back, although you never know what you're going to get with him, you know, he could walk the world. But, I mean, they've got a very deep bullpen. So if they get five innings, four runs from their starters, with that offense, particularly in that joke of a ballpark they play in, they could certainly still get by and win a first series, and even a second series, and get to the World Series. No question. But, as you know, the deeper you go, the more these guys get used, the harder it gets. Particularly when you're in a series, and a long series, and if it's a seven-game series against a good team like the Astros, you know, the more they see Zach Britton, the harder it's going to be for him to get, you know, Springer out and Bregman out, and the rest of those righties in that lineup out. Because he's not just a lefty specialist. Same thing for Adovino, all those guys. Now, it, goes, it works both ways, and I don't like the Astros bullpen at all. Roberto Ozuna, I, I mean, please. That's their closer. Highly unreliable. Anyway. Uh, American League wildcard race. Right now, Tampa Bay, half-game lead over Indians. Basically, they're tied in the loss column. Tampa, 81-58. and 58. God bless them, man. I swear. I don't know how they do it every year. It's unbelievable. Indians, 80-58. and 58. Puig and, and Framil Reyes trade started and paid dividends. Puig got off to a hot start. It's cooled off. Reyes was cold. Now he's gotten hot. They just got Carrasco back. That bullpen scares me a little bit, though. You know, Brad Hand, very hit or miss, their closer. Uh, and then the A's are still a, another team. It's a marvel. 78 and 58, they're only a game back. So very exciting race there. And then the Red Sox with, with a puncher's chance at 74 and 63, five and a half out. We talked about the Red Sox. Look, they won the World Series last year. They're in the playoffs every time you turn around. You know, they're, they're going to have a bad year this year. They're going to win, what, 88 games? Uh, it's not the end of the world. So that's your American League wild card picture. And, you know, as far as the divisions go, the Yankees have that wrapped up. Astros have their division wrapped up. Um, there's a chance the Indians could, could overtake the Twins, but they're five and a half back. I mean, stranger things have happened. Look, the Mets blew a seven-game lead with 17 games to go in 07. So, and then in 08, blew like a five-game lead with, you know, 22 games to go, something like this. Uh, we've seen stranger things happen. But it's unlikely. All right, now we get to NFL. So, we'll start with the Lions. And uh, actually, you know what? We're not going to start with the Lions. We're going to start with the Andrew Luck retirement because uh, we didn't do a show since that happened. 
you know, obviously took everybody by surprise. This guy's 29 years old in the prime of his career. You know, had an MVP-like season last year. Uh, when he's healthy, which he hasn't been for the majority or at least half of his career, he's one of the best quarterbacks in the league. And the Colts certainly seemed like a young ascending team. They had a great draft last year. They finally put some really good uh, linemen in front of them, particularly Quentin uh, Nelson, a kid that they drafted from Notre Dame last year. Uh, you know, they had a run game, good receivers. So, but then, you know, he'd been hurt all offseason, hurt all preseason. And then finally he decided, look, uh, I'm out. Like, I'm just out. And listen, Andrew Luck has made a ton of money. He doesn't need the money. It comes from a wealthy family anyway, but put that aside. He doesn't need the money. He's made a ton of money. The Colts are graciously letting him keep his, like, $25 million signing bonus. So he certainly doesn't need the money. And he's a smart enough guy that he could probably go do whatever he wants. He's going to, you know, he's a Stanford grad, the whole thing. Um, and so, you know, to paraphrase what he said in his press conference was, well, you know, look, the, the, the cycle of, you know, injury rehab playing, injury rehab playing just got, it was too much for him. He just got tired of it. And it sapped his joy of, for the game. And, you know, there are certain people out there that, that took issue with this, Dan Dockich being one of them who I guess is an Indiana guy, um, and said because one of the injuries uh, occurred when he was uh, snowboarding or something that, it, 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 you know, you shouldn't feel sorry for him. I mean, and that's dumb. I mean, look, it, it's, it's annoying. I, I wouldn't want my star quarterback getting hurt doing something like that. But, you know, you know guys have to live their lives too. And apparently it wasn't a violation of anything or else I'm sure Jim Irsay wouldn't have let that slide the owner of the Colts. Um, so, you know, he got booed apparently. Now, to be fair, it was like the fourth quarter of a preseason game. You know, you think about the, the types of folks that stay around for the fourth quarter preseason games. First of all, they probably had uh, several beers, probably not thinking straight. Um, but, you know, the interesting thing was, you know, I was watching PTI on this, and Wilbon pointed out that uh, the problem is in today's society, there's no shame anymore. Anymore, People have no shame. None. No shame to the point that they would boo this guy because, you know, word started to trickle in that he, had, that he was retiring. And that they would boo him like that, his home fans. I mean, because nobody has any shame. Because 30 years ago, if you went to the game with your father... You, first of all, your father wouldn't probably boo, but if, if you as a kid started to boo, hopefully your father or your mother would tell you to shut up. But nobody does that anymore. Or you tell the guy next to you, what are you doing? Why are you booing this guy? But nobody has any shame. Social media has made the entire country shameless. Just look at our president. Decorum is completely out the window, folks. Gone. Good manners? What are those? It's absurd. You know, it reminds me, actually, and listen, I understand, fan, you know, look, fans comes from the term fanatic. You know, I myself have, 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 have displayed some behavior that I'm not proud of at times, particularly when I was younger. Actually, it reminds me of an incident once. It's got to be, ooh, 
Well, it was the mid-90s, so do the math. Because Wayne Fonts was the coach for the Lions, and I was at a sports bar in Manhattan watching a Lions game. And I think, I, you know, I made some crack about Wayne. It wasn't even like, oh, I hate you, die, or something stupid like that. It was just basically like, oh, you know, Jesus, Wayne, you're clueless, or something like that. I think he had pulled Barry Sanders out of the game when the Lions had the ball on the goal line, and the replacement that he brought in fumbled the ball. And I was like, that is the dumbest decision, or something like that. And apparently... I was, in a, I was standing in a group of people that were also watching the game. Apparently one of them somehow, I think was related to Wayne Fonts. It's a young lady. And she, she, she didn't yell at me, but she was like clearly like upset. And I think she even started to cry. And uh, someone told me, oh, you know, it was either like a second cousin or a niece or something like that. So, I mean, I immediately apologized, said, listen, no hard feelings. I don't mean anything personal. I'm just upset about the game. And she was fine or whatever. But, I mean, at least I did that. I don't think people would do that today. No, now everybody doubles down. See, when you behave badly, instead of admitting that you behave badly, let's double down and try to excuse the bad behavior. Like Dan Dockage is dope. Stick to doing college basketball, Dan, okay? You know what the hell you're talking about. Said Andrew looks a uh, Andrew looks a liar and all this stuff. I mean, yeah, really just ripping the guy. You know, Doug Gottlieb said, "Oh, what a millennial thing to do! It's so soft." Look, nobody's as hard on millennials as I am. Nobody has more of a distaste for the whole millennial generation than I do. But I mean, you know, Doug Gottlieb's like, "Oh, it's too hard. That's such a millennial thing." First of all, I understand you played college basketball at Oklahoma State. It's not the same as playing professional football. Not the same as being a pro quarterback who's gotten the, 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 the snot knocked out of him most of his career. Okay, so while Doug Gottlieb certainly can speak to working hard as a top-level athlete, it's not the same. This is a dumb comment. You know, but this is where we are. What's interesting is, will this now start to set a precedent? You know, it's funny. As a guy as a Lions fan and saw Barry Sanders retire unexpectedly and Calvin Johnson somewhat unexpectedly, I wasn't that shocked by it, I guess, because it's happened to me twice as a fan of a team where two of my stars did that. And, you know, you've Gronkowski retiring at age 29, another guy who's gotten beaten up. By the way, nobody seemed to, to criticize him, interestingly enough. Um... Will this now start to set a bit of a precedent? I mean, look, players are way more savvy now than they used to be. Social media, for better or worse, provides these guys with other opportunities outside of football. You look over, these guys are looking at basketball. They're looking at guys like LeBron James, who are basically creating media empires. And saying, what the hell, you know, and, 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 and basketball is the best league in, in, in the history of the world when it comes to their players. All the money's guaranteed, basketball and baseball. And basketball markets its players better than any sport. There's fewer of them, right? They don't wear equipment. They're allowed to say and do whatever they want. The league doesn't try to muffle them or silence them. So you wonder, you know, Cam Newton, that's another guy. And I'm not a Cam fan, but another guy's gotten beaten up pretty badly over the course of his career. Let's say the, the Panthers have a rough year again this year, and he's coming off shoulder surgery, and he gets hurt again. 
You know, listen, a lot of people find Cam to be extremely charismatic. I'm not a fan, but a lot of other people do. Would you be surprised if he says, screw, who, who needs this aggravation? Not me. Let me go make $10 million doing something else. So it's going to be very interesting to see if this sets a precedent. I would not be surprised if it does. In fact, I think it will. I think you're going to see more and more star-type players in the NFL retiring before age 30. All right. Now, let's move on. The Lions. Hard to glean anything from preseason these days. Teams don't play anybody anymore, which I'm fine with, by the way. You know, because these off-seasons are, are interminable. There is no more off-season, right? You've got voluntary this, OTAs that, minicamp, voluntary minicamp. All this nonsense that goes on. And then training camp. And then you do the joint practices, right? The Lions practice against the Patriots and against the, 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 the Texans. So I have no issue with, with not playing your guys in preseason. As a matter of fact, they got two guys hurt. The starting middle linebacker, Jared Davis, and the starting center, Frank Ragnow, both got hurt in the third preseason game. Now, thankfully, it looked bad at the time. It looks like Ragnow is definitely going to play week one. Davis likely will not, and that's not such a bad thing anyway. He's not that good, but nevertheless, he'll probably be back week two or week three, but I have no issue not playing these guys. So it's hard to really get a read on this team. I'll say this. The lines are going to go as far as their lines take them. Why the Lions, I'll give you a reason why the Lions can win the division, and I'll give you a reason why the Lions are going to lose the, be last in the division. They'll win the division because their defensive line is extremely talented and extremely deep. You've got Trey Flowers now, the free agent signing from Patriots, Snacks Harrison, who completely turned that whole run defense around the second he showed up last year. You've got Mike Daniels. Who, you know, again, look, I don't know if he has anything left in the tank, but if it's the Mike Daniels for, that's played the majority of his career and not the injured version from last year from Green Bay, he's another stud. Good luck trying to run up the middle against him and Snacks Harrison. And Romeo Aquara, who had a very nice year for the Lions last year with seven and a half sacks. That's an excellent front four. Then you throw in Sean Robinson as a backup, who had an excellent season last year. Then you throw in Deshaun Han, who had an excellent rookie season as a backup last year. And you throw in, um, who's the third guy? I'm missing. I'm spacing right now. Anyway, very deep, talented defensive line. I mean, I guess, you know, you could say, I mean, the lines run some 3-4. They run some 4-3. So, I mean, that's, that's six very good and talented defensive linemen. And the secondary should be pretty good. You've got Darius Slay, one of the better cover corners in the league. You got Condre Diggs, one of the best strong safeties in the league. Certainly one of the hardest hitters. Be interesting to see if Tracy Walker makes the jump that they're expecting him to at free safety. And the other corners a big question mark. Could be Rashawn Melvin, might be Justin Coleman. Not gonna be Tease Tabor, second round pick two years ago. Cut. Adios. One of the worst second round picks in the history of the Lions. Didn't like it at the time. But the secondary should be pretty good. The linebacker should be okay. Not great, but okay. But with that defensive line, should go a long way. Now, that's why they would win. Because teams are going to have a tough time running the ball against them and scoring points in general. 
because they're going to be in lots of second and third and longs. Now, the flip side of that coin is the off line's offensive line, which looked god-awful this preseason. Now, I understand they didn't play that many reps, but when they did play, they looked terrible, particularly the tackles. Taylor Decker looked atrocious coming off a bad year last year. He's not looked anything like he did his rookie year. He's gotten worse every year. And Rick Wagner, also atrocious last year and did not look good in the preseason either. I actually think they're okay in the interior. I think Ragnow will be solid at center. I think Graham Glasgow will be solid at right guard. Left guard, bit of a question mark also. Might be Joe Dahl, might be Kenny Wiggins. Kenny Wiggins isn't any good either. Uh, but he's a favorite of the line, the, the offensive line coach, and he could play a lot of different positions, supposedly. So they kept him around. Um, so offense, lines, offensive line, look, the tackles, at one point, Taylor Decker was good. At one point, Rick Wagner was good because if he wasn't, he wouldn't have been the top free agent right tackle that the Lions signed three years ago. And the guy started three years for Baltimore, so how bad could he be? But for whatever reason, he's not played well with the Lions. So those guys have to at least be adequate. They don't have to be all pro, but they can't stink. They can't be getting trucked by Khalil Mack every time Stafford goes back to pass. They can't be getting beat like a drum by Daniil Hunter on the Vikings every time Stafford goes back to pass. The Lions have plenty of skill position players. They got two good tight ends in Hawkinson and Jesse James. Marvin Jones, Kenny Galladay, Amendola, fine receiving core. Kerryon Johnson, C.J. Anderson, Ty Johnson, rookie out of Maryland. Watch out for him this year, by the way. Good, good backs. And then, of course, Stafford, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. I don't care what anybody says. All about the offensive line, just like the Giants. Same. That offensive line gels and protects Eli. Giants will be fine on offense, better than fine, because Barkley's the best running back in the league, or one of them. Giants just have to kind of hang in there for four games until they get Golden Tate back. Now, it could be a problem because these receivers don't really scare anybody. I like Evan Ingram and all, but the tight end. But the, the Giants can have some issues. But the Lions are plenty good everywhere else. Offensive line has to perform. Which gets me to... You know, I really don't know what to make of the NFC North. We're going to start going around now picking division winners and wild card teams. I, I, I really don't know what to make of the NFC North. You know, of course, look, everybody's high in the Bears, right? Hey, it's Bear. They're, they are the darlings of the media. Everybody loves the Bears. I understand the defense is good. Max, great. Roquan Smith was great as a rookie last year. The stud from Georgia, who I loved. Akeem Hicks, D-tackles, very good. Eddie Jackson, the safety is very good. Uh, Prince of Mukamara, by the way, uh, he's okay. He's not great. And same with Fuller, the other corner. He's good. He's not great. Those guys can be beat. Their secondary doesn't scare me that much. And if you can neutralize Mac, you have a chance. I think their defense is a little overrated. Now, the offense could be good. It all depends upon Trubisky. He looked good at times last year. He looked really bad at times last year. But I just think this is a classic where everybody's way overrating them because of the season they had last year. I mean, look, they had like 39 takeaways last year. That's not sustainable. I don't care how good your defense is. 
They had a bunch of defensive touchdowns last year, one against the Lions on Thanksgiving. That's not sustainable. Then you go to the Vikings. Look, I have a little, as you know, I have a ton of respect for, for Mike Zimmer. That defense is always going to be good when he's there. But, you know, Harrison Smith's starting to get old. Everson Griffin's starting to get a little old. Barr, eh. Hendricks, eh. You know, I... Vikings defense might not be as good as everybody thinks. I'm not a big Trey Waynes guy. Their other corner. Xavier Rhodes, I think, is a little overrated. Their supposed all-pro corner. And then you go over the offense. Yeah, they put up numbers. And I love Stephon Diggs from Maryland. Everybody knows I do. Couldn't believe he was only a fifth-round pick. And Theline is legit. And watch out for Chad Beebe. Don Beebe's kid is a slot receiver. He's going to be good. And Dalvin Cook looks like he's healthy, the running back. But that offensive line, again, a little shaky. And, uh, again, I'd be a hypocrite if I told you I like Kirk Cousins. I don't. I mean, per- perfect example. Kirk Cousins, 30 touchdowns, 10 interceptions last year. The Vikings went 8-7-1. and one. He will always make the killer mistake at the worst possible time. That's just who he is. Puts up big, lofty, flowery numbers, and he never wins. Now, I understand it's not just him, but he's on a good team. See, it's not like he's on a bad team and they didn't win. It's on a good team. The rest of that team is pretty good. They were better. They did better without him the year before with Case Keenum as a quarterback. So I can't like the Vikings that much as long as Kirk Cousins is the quarterback. I just can't. Which brings us to the Packers. I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, Matt LaFleur might be a one-and-done coach there. This guy is such a clown. He's got such a chip on his shoulder. First of all, dumbest thing ever, he picks a fight with Aaron Rodgers the second he gets hired. Now, supposedly, it's all you know, unicorns and roses and everybody smoothed everything over. But they had, apparently, the big bone of contention was he didn't want to let Rodgers change any plays in the line of scrimmage. I just saw him interviewed before, and now they apparently said, no, he, d- he does have the ability to audible. Uh, we just don't call it audibles. Oh, then what, what do you call it, coach? Oh, it's so laughable you guys are still thinking about this. That's what he said to the media. You know what? He's another one of these guys, right, that thinks he's so much smarter than everybody and has disdain for the media. How dare they question the genius that is Matt LaFleur, who's done nothing in the league, by the way. You've done nothing. You're an assistant coach for the Titans. Get lost. So this guy already came in with a massive chip on his shoulder. Now, look, they might get away with it because Aaron Rodgers is great. But guess what? Aaron Rodgers is 35. Aaron Rodgers has not finished the season in the last two years. Other than Devontae Adams and Aaron Jones, I don't love the rest of the Packers' weapons as far as backs, tight ends, receivers are concerned. That offensive line, look, they get away with murder whoever they put in there because it's Rodgers. So they don't have to be that good. They just clutch and grab and hold and do whatever they need to to keep him upright. But even, even with that, he got beat up a bunch last year. And then on defense, look, they, put a, they spent a whole lot of money on a couple of decent outside linebackers in uh, Preston Smith and Zadarius Smith. They drafted Darnell Savage from Maryland in the first round, who I'm a big fan of, but I, I didn't think he was a first-round pick. So we'll see what that defense looks like. But I don't really love them either. 
Again, because I think this coach is a potential one and done material. I swear to God. I think this guy is going to be completely overmatched. Which brings me to the Lions, who I just told you about. I, I don't even know what to do here. I really don't. I mean, I don't like Kirk Cousins. I don't like the Packers coach. And I think the Bears are overrated. And the Lions, I, I have no idea what to make of. Well, I, I do. If the, if the offensive line plays well, I think they'll be fine and they can win the division. But I'm not confident the line, offensive line is going to play well. Bob Quinn has shown a, a stark inability to judge offensive line talent, the general manager of the Lions, since he's been here. So I guess I'm going to have to go with the Packers to win the division just because Rodgers is the best quarterback in the, in the conference. I, I, it's, I, mean, it's, I know it's, not, it's, it's, it's a lazy... It's lazy reasoning, I guess, on my part, but I mean, I don't like any of these teams. So I guess I'm going to go with him, even though I don't think the coach, I think the coach could be one and done. I know it's a complete contradiction. I don't know what to tell you. All right, let's go to the NFC East. I hate to say it, but I got to pick the Cowboys. I understand they got the whole Zeke drama. Um, and as good as he is, I think they'll be just fine with Tony Pollard. Uh, I think Amari Cooper, full season of him, makes a big difference. I think Michael Gallup will make a jump in his second year, the other wide receiver. They've got Witten back. Not that he, look, he's old, but he, he, he provides a security blanket for Dak. A lot of people don't like Dak, and he's not great, but I love his moxie. And that offensive line is back healthy again and good. They just, re- they just extended Lyle Collins, the right tackle. The offensive line holds up. Their offense will be fine. And, and Elliott's going to be back at some point. He might even sign today. They've got some playmakers on defense now. They've got a bit of a pass rush. Look, that division, to me, is, is all over the place. We'll get to the other teams in a second. I, I, I got, I'm going to take the Cowboys. I don't love them. And I think they're a 10-6 team, but I think that wins that division. I'm going to pick the Giants for second place in that division. Look, the lack of receiving talent does frighten me. But I think that defense is going to be a lot better than people think. I think they're going to have a good pass rush with uh, Low Carter in his second year. And they got Marcus Golden, who's a whirling dervish from the Cardinals. Guy always puts heat on the quarterback if he's healthy. Uh, the X-Man, O'Shane. Zimenez, the ODU kid they drafted. I like B.J. Hill. I like Dalvin Tomlinson, Dexter Lawrence. Good defensive line. I think that front seven is going to be good. Secondary could be a little shaky. But I think they're going to get after the quarterback. And they're going to be hard to run against. Offense does scare me other than Barkley. And I love Golden Tate. Him and Sterling Shepard should be, and, and Engram, if either Latimer or uh, Fowler can at least be give them something, and they can be two and two, even one and three after the first four, and then Tate comes back, I like their chances. Brings us to the Eagles, who everybody loves. You know, look, Eagles have a good team. Provided Carson Wentz stays healthy, um, when when has that happened exactly? Never. Guy's injury prone. Yeah, he's really good when he plays, but I don't I don't see why this year is going to be any different. I mean, I guess you would say law of averages. Okay, 
And if he plays 16 games, yeah, the Eagles are the best team in that conference. I don't think he will. And they don't have Nick Foles to bail them out this year as a backup. And then the Redskins are a complete and utter disaster. I mean, they, they, they just are. Now, I like Darius Geist, the running back. We'll see. But, you know, their Pro Bowl left tackle, Trent Williams, hasn't shown up at all for training camp. The rest of that line is okay, not great. They have some pieces on defense, all those guys from Alabama, but it hasn't really panned out yet. Um, Gruden, to me, Jay Gruden does not seem to have a good handle on that team. I, 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 the Redskins look exceedingly like a 4-12, and 5-11 and 11 team. For sure. All right. NFC South. I've got the Saints winning the division. I've got uh, Carolina as a wild card. I've got Tampa Bay bringing up the pack at the bottom of that division. And Atlanta is about an 8-8, eight 9-7 and, eight, and seven team. Just miss out on a wild card. In the West, I have the Seahawks winning the division. Rams is a wild card. 49ers in third place and the Cardinals in last place. And then over in the AFC, in the East, Patriots, of course. The division is trash as usual. Uh, I think the Jets are in for a rough year. I know everybody's very high on the Jets. Um, I, you know, because of Le'Veon Bell. Uh, everybody's in love with Sam Darnold. Uh, I, I still don't love him. Uh, I think he, his footwork is still too sloppy at times. I don't love the Jets' offensive line. Um, they had a big loss with uh, Avery Williamson, a linebacker. Although Jets' defense should be decent, although their corners are a mess. I mean, Tremaine Johnson was awful last year and wasn't that good to begin with anyway. He's okay for the Rams, not great. He's not a stud lockdown number one corner. That's what the Jets are paying him to be. He's not that. And he was terrible last year. I don't even know who their second corner is. Yeah, I love Jamal Adams. Everybody does. Marcus May needs to stay healthy. The other safety. You know, we'll see what uh, Quentin Williams does. The stud from Alabama. He should be good. See if that helps untap some of uh, Leonard Williams' potential. The kid from USC they drafted a few years ago. But I don't, I don't love the Jets. I mean, I don't think they're going to be awful, but I, 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 they look like a 7-9 and nine team to me. The Dolphins are, are intentionally trying to be bad. Not the coach, former poly prep grad Brian Flores. But, by the way, I'm rooting for him because we went to the same high school. He's also said a bunch of things this pre- preseason that just make me cringe. Um, and the Bills aren't going to be any good. So, I mean, it's going to be a cakewalk for the Patriots, as usual, in that division anyway. AFC North, I like the Steelers. I think the, 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 the drama-free environment, no Le'Veon, no Antonio Brown, all that nonsense gone. We see the Steelers do this every year with the receivers. And I understand Antonio Brown is great. But you know what? They, they said, adios, Plaxico Burris, didn't miss a beat. Adios, Antonio Holmes, didn't miss a beat. Adios, Martavis Bryant, didn't miss a beat. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. Mike Wallace, see you later, didn't miss a beat. I mean, it doesn't matter. James Washington will step right in to pair with Juju Smith-Schuster, and it'll be just fine. And James Conner had a great year already last year. We saw we, they didn't even need Le'Veon Bell. Not having Le'Veon Bell last year is not why the Steelers didn't have a good year. And Devin Bush now added to the middle of that defense. It's going to make that whole thing go. I like the Steelers to win that division. I like the Browns as a wild card. 
I don't like the Ravens at all, and the Bengals are not going to be any good at all. In the South, look, I actually like Jacoby Brissett, the new quarterback for the Colts. I understand when he played a lot two years ago, they went 4-11. Uh, the team was terrible. The team is now good. He's got talent. The Patriots liked him. I still think they win that division. I don't think it's a very good division. Now, it'd be interesting to see if the Jaguars have a back, bounce, bounce back year. The Titans are not any good at all. Um, Texans, I love Deshaun Watson. Uh, they made these tr- crazy trades. They traded all these draft picks, these first-round picks. For, for They traded away Jadavian Clowney. They got nothing back for him. They traded for Laramie Tunsil, but they gave away two first-round picks and don't even haven't even extended him and locked him up yet. I mean, they're, they're doing things over there that are insane. But I do love the quarterback. Their, their, their starting running back got hurt, but who do they just pick up to replace him? Well, they have Duke Johnson, although he's not really an every-down back. I forget who they signed. Oh, boy. Let me see. Let's, let's take a look. And they still have J.J. Watt and Bernardrick McKinney and Zach Cunningham. I mean, they've got some good players still on that defense. But let me take a look here at the roster. I don't know. I just I just something about that that team just seems to not resonate with me. Oh, Carlos Hyde. Eh. I mean, eh. I don't know. I'll pick him to be a wild. Uh, no, I'm not picking him to be a wild card. No, sorry. Because in the West, I've got Kansas City winning the division. I got San Diego as a wild card, uh, and then the Raiders with the clown John Gruden as the coach. We're uh, going to be dead last again, and the Broncos aren't going to be any good either. So there you go. Those are my predictions. Division winners and wildcard teams will be back next Monday with all the week one action in the NFL. As always, thanks for listening. Cactus, anywhere you listen to, uh, uh, to podcasts. Check us out on SoundCloud, Facebook page, Jamal About Sports, website, jamalaboutsports.com. Until next week, peace out.